Greetings, I'm Josh Lowe, and this is NBA Retrospective. First of all, happy Thanksgiving to all listeners. Secondly, literally as I record this episode, the Knicks and Heat are playing each other in the NBA in-season tournament. And that's quite fitting since these are the only two eight seeds to ever reach an NBA Finals, and the Knicks beat the number one seeded Heat in the first round in 1999. And we're going to continue our look back at those Knicks Cinderella's and see if we can figure out from a statistical standpoint how they've reached their finals. Additionally, we are going to do some brief comparisons between those Knicks and the 2023 Heat, who were the other team to reach the NBA Finals as an eight seed. Check, see if we can see some similarities in terms of how they got there. We are somewhat limited, though, in terms of the 2023 Heat, simply because the play-in tournament does not allow me to do the coding in the soft statistical software program R. So we'll have to go with just limited values for the Heat from basketball reference. But getting back, first of all, to the New York Knicks 1999 New York Knicks. And when I last left off in our last episode, things were not going particularly well for the Knicks. They were 11 and 9, again, which was not a terrible record, obviously. However, it was not in line with the internal expectations in the locker room. Not talking about statistics just yet, just the internal expectations within that locker room. And the last thing that happened was franchise cornerstone Patrick Ewing sustained an Achilles injury early on in the 18th game of the season and would be out for games 19 through 24. Now, in response to that mediocre record, new team owner James Dolan wanted to make a change at either coach or GM. And the players wanted Jeff Van Gundy as coach over... Ernie Grunfeld as GM. So that means that at this time, the Knicks were dealing with, get a drum roll please, Van Gundy job questions, okay? Um, Latrell Sprewell's agent actually called for his firing, Coach Van Gundy's firing. Point guard Charlie Ward was passing out copies of an article by NFL lineman Reggie White on banning female reporters from the locker room. Which, okay, that's a uh, position, but it's, it can be seen as a controversial stance. And as I've reviewed, the Knicks had already had plenty of controversy this year. So, so add that on. And this Knicks team was the NBA's most expensive roster. $69 million total team salary. Does not sound like much based on the salaries of right now. But remember that this was 1999. And the production was not matching that pay. Once again, the market size question is worthwhile. Would all of these controversies become public in a smaller city and smaller market than New York? And all of these incidents prompted Chris Herring of Sports Illustrated. Again, for those of you who don't remember from the last episode, a lot of this content comes from his book, Blood in the Garden, I highly recommend that you read that if you are a fan of the Knicks then or now. But in any case, Herring 
made the comparison between that locker room, what was go everything that was going on in that locker room, and an episode of Ricky Lake. So you can sort of see why uh, all of these kinds of th- all of these things going on at the same time while the team is trying to win games. And after 42 games, the Knicks were only 21 and 21, 500 record. Um, maybe that's due to all the drama. Maybe not. We don't really have a way statistically to look at that. However, what we do know is that this, coupled with the locker room drama, likely led team president Dave Checkets to travel with the team from game 43 on and see, quote, every game and practice for the remainder of the season. Now, we don't know if Dave Checkett's presence had anything to do with it, but we do know that the Knicks went 6-2 and two in the final eight games, including two wins over the eventual top seed Miami Heat, and that would ultimately secure the eighth and final playoff spot in the Eastern Conference. Now, the drama is not over. They did make the playoffs, but the drama is far from over. And so the Knicks matched up against the top seed Heat in the first round. ESPN's J.A. Adondi, quote, Knicks Heat is the definitive rivalry when it comes to hatred between two teams. And Adondi, for those of you who don't know, has been working in basketball, in NBA analysis for a while. Um, he knows what he's talking about. Also, again, in Herring's book, he goes into the historical rivalry between the Knicks and Heat. I don't have enough time to do that on a podcast about a single season. So again, if you're interested in the rivalry itself, read Herring's work. Uh, Commissioner David Stern actually warned both the Knicks and the Heat about potential discipline because of the historical hatred between the two teams. And... There was no specific action this season that triggered Stern's warning. I want to make that clear. This wasn't about um, any of the drama that went on in the Knicks' locker room. It was just about the historical rivalry between the Heat, Knicks and the Heat. And that, so that was sort of the uh, on-court drama. You're facing your intense rival in the first round. Off the court, we've got even more behind-the-scenes drama in the coaching ranks and in the front office, and that is that Dave Checkett's had clandestine meetings with Phil Jackson. Those of you who listened to my previous podcast, he was the coach of those dynastic last dance bulls, and he had been fired before this season, before this 99 season, and Dave Checkett's was having clandestine meetings with Phil Jackson before the playoffs began. So that's a tacit plan to hire Jackson if the Knicks lost to the Heat in the first round. So the bottom line is that Jeff Van Gundy, whether he knew it or not, was coaching for his job. Oddly, though, this did not seem to affect the series' outcome. Only Game 5 had a margin less than 10 points either way. In other words, we had a bunch of blowouts in that series. But the teams played to a two-games-to-two series tie after four games. And getting to Game 5, okay, go to YouTube, look up Allen Houston Game 5 Heat in 1999. 
He hit a Game 5 floater from just beyond the foul line with the Knicks down by one and less than one second left. And interestingly enough, that shot is generally the worst type of shot now to take statistically because it's worth only two points, the same as a dunk or a layup, while a shot only a couple of feet back, if you take a few more steps back from that free throw line, that's going to be worth three. Yet, it won the Knicks a game and a series, and there would be no podcast episode on this team right now if it weren't for that shot. And we're going to talk a little bit more about these playoffs. And the following series against the Atlanta Hawks was somewhat anticlimactic. The Knicks swept that series four games to none. We did hear some supportive Jeff Van Gundy chants from the crowd during this series. Now, the Eastern Conference Finals against the Indiana Pacers was another story. Um, First of all, only one game, this is far cry from that Heat series, only one game, which was a Game 4 Pacers win, in that entire six-game series was decided by more than eight points. So all of these games were pretty close. Patrick Ewing, again, injured his Achilles in Game 2 and attempted to play through it, but he ultimately couldn't, and the Knicks had to play Games 3 through 6 without him. And this is another shot that you should probably look up on YouTube if you haven't seen it. With the Knicks down 91-88 late in Game 3, Larry Johnson would convert the rare quote-unquote four-point play. This is a three-point basket plus an and-one foul shot off a tipped inbound pass. Um, Let me, I'm going to veer off script for a little bit. I'm still on topic, but I'm going to veer off script for a little bit, a little bit, excuse me. My nephew, Jesse, he's got a podcast of his own called Off the Bench. Jesse calls this a three-and-one. And as we talked about ones on Off the Bench, Three and one is exceptionally rare in the NBA. And Larry Johnson converted one. Again, go to YouTube because you're going to want to see that shot. And that made the score 92 to 91 Knicks for the win. And again, there wouldn't be a podcast without that shot. A podcast episode, I should say, without that shot. Now, Larry Johnson's euphoria was perhaps short-lived as he injured his knee early in Game 6. With both Johnson and Ewing out, Allen Houston stepped up to hit 70% from the floor in Game 6 for 32 points, including 8 of 9 field goals in the second half. Now, the Knicks' victory ultimately set up a showdown with the ascendant San Antonio Spurs pitting the league's largest market against its smallest. Now, I want to have a short interlude on the Spurs here because they actually display remarkable parallels to this Knicks team. Coach Greg Popovich also faced the quote-unquote hot seat earlier in the season, and we talked just a little bit earlier about the hot seat as far as Jeff Van Gundy was concerned. Spurs opened 6-8 and and lost 101-87 to the Jazz in their 15th game. And Popovich actually met with stars David Robinson and Avery Johnson and said, quote-unquote, if we don't win this next game against Houston, there could potentially be a coaching change. And the Spurs actually had a candidate in mind, Doc Rivers, who recently coached the Los Angeles Clippers and Philadelphia 76ers. He's now on the lead broadcast team at ESPN. 
Yet the Spurs beat Houston on the road by 17 and then won 42 of their remaining 48 games, including the playoffs, en route to their first of five NBA championships. And Popovich, as most of you probably know, is still with the Spurs to this day and is in the conversation for the GOAT status, greatest of all time among NBA coaches. And in terms of the actual NBA Finals, the Spurs were clearly the superior team. They had more height and more depth. And recall that Patrick Ewing was out with an Achilles injury. And recently, in 2023, Ewing told the Basketball Network it would have been a different series. The Spurs ultimately won that series four games to one. But Ewing said it would have been a different series had he been healthy. Ewing believes he would have successfully matched up against the Spurs' David Robinson. And these finals and the complete season could actually be seen as a redemptive arc for Latrell Sprewell. He stayed out of trouble apart from those personnel comments by his agent. He was also a key player with the Knicks until the end. And in the finals, Sprewell answered the question of why the Knicks traded for him. He finished second on the team in minutes played behind only Allen Houston. And this, it's notable that this was a very low-scoring NBA Finals. Perhaps that's due to the compressed season and associated player fatigue. No team scored 100 points in any game, and only once, the Spurs in Game 4 with 96, did a team score over 90. Now, Sprewell's Game 5 performance, although it came in a loss, was particularly elite in this context because Sprewell had 35 points in a game where no team, no team, scored more than 78. And I remember that specific game and Sprewell going shot for shot with Tim Duncan, who led the Spurs with 31 points. And for those of you who have not seen it, don't let the low 78-77 to final score fool you. This was an extremely exciting basketball game. And yet again, this is very interesting because we talk with analytics about what shots are the most beneficial to take, what shots you shouldn't take. Avery Johnson's shot with the Spurs that ultimately won the championship for San Antonio, again, you can look that up on YouTube, would not be considered desirable analytically today. It was essentially a long corner two. So probably about two feet back would have been a three. Now, would a similar player have taken that shot today? So current league shot charts suggest that players either take threes, because obviously they're worth more points, or twos that are very close to the basket, in the paint, essentially. And that makes sense analytically, because that maximizes your point value. Why do you take the long two when you can either go to the basket for the same value, or step back a couple feet and go for three? And... The execution of that play leading to Johnson's shot, getting him open in the corner, Tim Duncan to Sean Elliott to Avery Johnson, was also virtually perfect basketball. Again, go to YouTube for that. And I remember Sprewell's missed last second shot and the sense of heartbreak that permeated the airwaves, even though the odds were long against the Knicks coming back in the series. Uh, the game was at Madison Square Garden, though, so you could feel the sense of um, deflation among the fans. Now, apart from the rarity of being only one of two eight seeds to make a finals, these Knicks were a very unlucky team. 
They were knocked out six teams in the 1990s by an eventual league champion, including in 1999. And if you listen to previous episodes of this podcast, the Knicks had a similar problem to the Jazz and the Suns in the 90s. And that is they kept running into a dynastic Bulls team and then into an eventual dynastic Spurs team. And it's noteworthy that the Knicks reached the finals in both 1994 and 1999, which were the years following both of Michael Jordan's first two retirements. And apart from Lynn Sanity, which was um, Jeremy Lynn entering the New York Knicks and earning a division title in 2013, the Knicks have not approached similar heights to 1999 since. They have not reached the finals, um, haven't come close as far as I can recall. So this may be a true once-in-a-lifetime season. Now, we're going to get into the basketball analytics perspective. I discussed the statistical questions we hope to answer in our last episode. I'm going to review them now for those of you who haven't listened to that episode yet, or maybe you don't remember. First of all, can old teams still succeed? For perspective, the Knicks' average age was 30.2 years. No current teams have average player age over 30. The league average at the time was 28. So, next question, how did this team win a conference championship given all this drama? And until 1999, no eight seed had ever reached an NBA Finals, so why did this Knicks team do it? What metric or metrics did they succeed in to get there? And how does this team compare to the 2023 Heat, the other team to accomplish this? And so we're going to aim to answer these questions with the help of the ELO and four factors metrics for the 1998-99 Knicks. We are also going to look at the four factors metrics for the players involved in the trades, which I covered in the last episode. That was Charles Oakley to the Raptors for Marcus Camby and John Starks to the Warriors for Latrell Sprewell. We do have a limitation there to note, and that is that the team performance, specifically performance by the Warriors and the Raptors, can impact the individual four-factors performance. Neither the Raptors nor the Warriors were particularly good teams in 1998-99. Recall that the Raptors had only been in the league for three years at that point, and a 35-year-old Charles Oakley was likely not a great fit on that team. The Raptors were very young, again, partly because they had only just entered the league, partly because, as a result of just entering the league, they had gotten high draft choices, which means you're, you're usually playing a lot of young players because you are, um, you're going to be starting those high draft choices typically quickly. Now... So getting to our ELO simulation on the Knicks, first of all. Recall that we simulated the 1998-99 season 10,000 times using ELO rating. And we were able to simulate average win count and counts out of 10,000 of playoff appearances, division titles, conference championships, and league championships. And recall that we also measured the residual, which is the difference between ELO expected wins and actual wins. So all values are included in the table below. Um, So what we have here, 
The Knicks' expected win total over 10,000 seasons was 25.968, and the Knicks were projected to make the playoffs in 6,241 of the 10,000 simulations. That's a higher count than one might expect for a 500 team, but recall the limitations of the shortened season. And the Knicks' actual wins were 27. Again, we talked about that end-of-the-season winning streak that they had in the final eight games. And so during the regular season, the Knicks performed only slightly above ELO expectation. The residual was 1.022. In other words, they won about one more game than expected. And according to ELO, they won only 354 of 10,000 conference championships, which is a rate of only 3.54%. Okay, so that's very rare right off the bat. If you simulated 10,000 seasons, in only 3.54% do the Knicks win a conference championship. Yet they won one in reality. So right off the bat, very rare. And that rare accomplishment, along with the 8-seed designation associated with it, proved the apex for the Knicks. They have not returned to the finals since 1999. And again, that brings up the question, how does a team who, okay, slightly overperforms the ELO expectation, but still, you know, only 27 and 23, so just a little bit over 500, could the answer be, so how does a team do that? How does a team do that and then get to the finals? Obviously, the first question you want to ask there is, could the answer be in the playoffs? Time to talk about playoffs. And it certainly looks that way based on the ELO progression graph. And I do apologize, a podcast is not a great way to show an ELO progression graph because you have to be able to see it. Um, But I will do the best I can with verbal descriptions. So we know about the winning streak after 42 games, and we do see a small rise in ELO rating on the graph at that point. What's more intriguing, though, is that ELO keeps on rising as the Knicks progress through the playoffs and drops only slightly following the finals loss, okay? So the rating bottoms out at around 1,500, which, recall, 1,500 is an average ELO rating, okay? Um, ELO, if you remember from previous episodes, was initially designed to evaluate chess players, and evaluate the likely result of matchups between two chess players. It was subsequently adapted for basketball and other sports. 1,500 is average. For the Knicks, they bottomed out this season at 1,500, around the fifth game of the season. And ELO rating tops around 1,650, which was the NBA Finals. That's a very high rating if 1,650 if you're looking at a scale where 1,500 is the average. And so what that indicates to me is that while an old team is certainly a banged-up team, and recall the injuries to Ewing specifically that we had this year, it's also an experienced team. And experience can take a team very far when we're talking about playoffs. And we are talking about playoffs here. Again, the experience, okay, that's what I suspect uh, got this team to where they were. That 
and those timely shots by guys like Larry Johnson and Allen Houston. Um, again, that's it's improbable, but those shots, without those shots, this podcast episode would not exist. Moving on, we are going to talk also about the team four factors, okay? So just what did this team, riddled with so much drama on and off the court, excel in to get to the NBA Finals? And to remind listeners what the four factors are, if you haven't heard NBA Analytics 101 yet, we have effective field goal percentage, which is field goal percentage with additional weight given to three-pointers. Turnover percentage, which accounts for team turnovers along with field goal and free throw attempts. Rebound percentage, which is team rebounds collected divided by total rebounds collected, not rebounds divided by missed shots. That's a common misconception. And free throws for field goal attempted is exactly what it sounds like. Free throws divided by field goal attempts. And remember, too, that all four factors have both an offensive and a defensive component, so we're actually going to be looking at eight total variables here. That's all you need to know for the purposes of this podcast. If you are interested in specific mathematical formulas, then you can either listen to NBA Analytics 101 or read the four factors article at Basketball Reference. They explain them very well. And... So what we did was we set up a model. We regressed these factors on win total for the 1999 season. Wins is equal to Zeke row plus effective field goal percentage plus turnover percentage plus offensive rebound percentage plus free throws for field goal attempt plus opposing effective field goal percentage plus opposing turnover percentage plus defensive rebound percentage plus opposing free throws per field goal attempt. Now, recall from our main series on the 1999 season that all eight variables that I just read emerged as significant predictors of team win total. So that means we need to look at all of them if we want to understand these Knicks statistically. Now, at face value, the Knicks look like a team who were formed as expected if we are considering the regular season only. ELO projected, as we talked about earlier, 25.968 wins. Four factors, if you combine all of them together, four factors projected 27.869 wins. Okay, The actual win count of 27, therefore, makes sense with both, with both models. Both models have residual absolute value of less than one, so they get it right to within one game either way. Now, playoffs are less accurately predicted. The Knicks only got 354 out of 10,000 conference championships, according to ELO. And again, we talked about the just how few titles that was. That's only 3.54%. So getting into the four factors, where the Knicks ranked in terms of the four factors, okay? And again, recall that all factors prove significant in terms of predicting win percentage. So the Knicks ranked 17th in the NBA in effective field goal percentage. That was 0.463, and that falls at below average and below the median. A turnover percentage ties for 26th lowest or third highest in the NBA at 0.159. That's well below average. Offensive rebound percentage, 24th in the NBA, 0.279, also below average and below median. 
Now, Knicks rank 15th in free throws to field goal rate at 0.241, which is essentially average and right on the median. Now, in contrast, the Knicks rank 2nd in the NBA, 2nd, behind only the NBA champion Spurs in opposing effective field goal percentage at 0.434, which suggests physical, successful defense. And remember, you had players like Patrick Ewing, Marcus Camby, who were noteworthy throughout their careers for that. The Knicks tie for 12th in the league in opposing turnover percentage, which was 0.149, which was just above both the average and the median. Now, Knicks tied for 5th in the NBA in defensive rebound percentage, 0.710, which coincidentally or not, was actually tied with the Miami Heat. Knicks tied for 18th in the NBA in opposing free throw to field goal rate, 0.258, which is below average, but recall that the Knicks can only control how often their opponents reach the line and not how many shots they make once they get there. During the regular season, data indicates that the Knicks performed largely as expected. Again, four factors gave them about 28 wins. Elo, about 26. Actually got 27. So the Knicks performed and did as well as they did, largely based on strong defensive metrics. The Knicks ranked no higher than 15th in any offensive factor, but they ranked below 15th in only one defensive factor, which was opposing free throw to field goal rate. And the Knicks' defensive prowess is most noteworthy in opposing effective field goal percentage, where they were second only to the Spurs at 0.434, and defensive rebound percentage, tied for fifth with the Heat at 0.710. And this may answer the question, why this team, as far as them being that 1-8 seed before the Heat to reach the NBA Finals? By keeping opposing effective field goal percentage low and dominating the defensive glass, you can stay in games where you might otherwise be blown out. And any coach will tell you that you can't let an opposing team hang around. And not only would, obviously, great defense help you not let an opposing team hang around, it would enable you to hang around against an opposing team. And... So that's so that's very key in their performance this year. So elite performance in these categories also helps explain how the Knicks did as well as they did despite being an older team. They might not win any suicide agility drills. For those of you who are, who are not familiar with those, what those basically are is you run from the hoop to the foul line and back, touch the and, and touch the ground, run from the hoop to the mid-court line and back, you touch the ground. Hoop to the other foul line at the other end of the court and back, touch the ground. And then, um, no, it's sorry, it's it's uh, hoop to the other end of the court, other, other foul line, touch the ground, run back. Hoop to the other hoop, touch the ground, run back. So though, yeah, those are those are what they call suicide drills. Uh, sorry for the name. They've been called that since I can remember. Um, I I can't I can't change the name for 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 that. But so they're not the Knicks wouldn't might not win any of those because of the age. 
but they will still win defensive battles under the rim. And ultimately, that's what prevents the opposing team from scoring points. And again, we go back to Bear Bryant's quote, offense sells tickets, but defense wins. And I feel like adding the word conference here, defense wins conference championships. And we are again going to talk briefly about the Spurs. This episode is about the Knicks, but we're going to talk about the Spurs as well, specifically because, okay, the league champion Spurs also won their title by excelling in a defensive metric. And specifically, that was by finishing a dominating first in opposing effective field goal percentage. Second was indeed this Nick team. And not coincidentally, they went to the finals. But opposing effective field goal percentage for Spurs, 0.423. And it's also noteworthy about the Spurs that besides Tim Duncan, who was only 22 at the time, all of the Spurs' starting five were 30 or over including 33-year-old David Robinson. So the Spurs were also an older team and playing in a compressed 50-game season. And Robinson and Duncan were also known for a tough interior defense, just in the same way that Ewing was, the same way that Camby was. So that also provides a blueprint for how older teams can still be successful. Now, we're going to talk about those trades that the Knicks made. That was Oakley versus Camby, Charles Oakley versus Marcus Camby, and John Starks versus Latrell Sprewell. And remember that those trades were seen as highly controversial for reasons that I discussed in the last episode. And we are going to look at individual four factors for these players because there are too many other variables that influence team four factors values. Specifically, the Raptors and Warriors, as we talked about earlier, were not that great of teams, so their four factors values are going to be lower as a result of that. It's not going to have anything to do with the Knicks. Okay, so getting now to Oakley versus Camby. Effective field goal percentage, okay? Charles Oakley did not qualify, and Marcus Camby did not qualify. And what we mean by did not qualify... There are minimum requirements per basketball reference that you have to meet for a rate statistic. And the and in other words, you have to take a certain number of field goals. Neither of them did. Okay? So that that's the so that's just the deal. They did not qualify for effective field goal percentage, so we can't measure that one. Now, and I believe, if I recall correctly, the that metric was 183 field goals had to be made by a player in order to qualify for that metric. 183 in the 50-game season. Now, moving on to offensive rebound percentage. Charles Oakley, 0.067, ranked 78th in the league. Marcus Camby, 0.132, ranked 11th in the league. So the winner for that category is Marcus Camby. Now, moving on to turnover percentage. Charles Oakley, 0.209, 186 in the league. Marcus Camby, 0.113 for 38th in the league. And remember that when we're talking about turnover percentage, obviously lower is better. You do not want to turn the basketball over. Winner, once again, Marcus Camby. Now, moving on to free throws per field goal attempt. Um... 
I want to make a note with this category that we couldn't establish ranking because basketball reference had free throws and they had field goal attempts, but they didn't have the combination. So I just had to get the free throws, get the field goal attempts, and divide. I was not able to get a rank. So for Charles Oakley, free throws per field goal attempt, 0.205. Marcus Camby, 0.218. Winner once again, Marcus Camby. Moving on now to defensive rebound percentage. Charles Oakley, 0.199, tied for 34th. Marcus Camby, 0.182, tied for 53. Winner in that category was Oakley. And okay, yeah, so minimum requirement was indeed 183 field goals made for effective field goal percentage. Sorry if I was not clear about that. Um, But in any case, those are the only factors that we can really measure for individual players because the rest of them are opponent-based or based on opponents. And of course, different play. Di- the Oakley and Canby would, would have guarded different players throughout the course of the season, different players on different teams. So that's impossible, really, to compute. Now, in terms of Oakley versus Canby, despite fan displeasure, it appears the Knicks indeed made the right decision to trade Oakley for Canby from a statistical standpoint. We saw that Canby emerged superior in four of the five factors for which individual statistics are measurable. Oakley was superior only in defensive rebound percentage. And again, we want to note that supporting casts, teammates, can influence all of these variables, and the Raptors were below 500 and very young in 1999. You always want to acknowledge the limitations. Now, moving on to the other big trade in the offseason, that was John Starks for Latrell Sprewell. So looking at effective field goal percentage, John Starks, 0.423, 92nd in the league. Latrell Sprewell, 0.435, tied for 83rd. Uh, the winner, Sprewell. And just as a coincidence, Sprewell actually tied, among other players, with Patrick Ewing in effective field goal percentage. Moving on now to offensive rebound percentage, John Starks, 0.020, tied for 157th. Latrell Sprewell, 0.041, tied for 105th. Winner again, Latrell Sprewell. Moving on to turnover percentage. John Starks, 0.097 for 15th in the league. Latrell Sprewell, 0.116 for 45th in the league. Winner there, Starks. Moving on to free throws for field goal attempt. Again, no ranking possible for these. John Starks, 0.102. Latrell Sprewell, 0.299. Winner, Sprewell. Moving on to defensive rebound percentage. John Starks, 0.084. Tied for 165th. Latrell Sprewell, 0.106. Tied for 128th. Winner, Latrell Sprewell. So, Again, despite the questions surrounding him, given his violent history and the blank happens comment when reference when the media referenced a pit bull attack on his daughter, it appears the Knicks made the correct decision basketball-wise to trade for Latrell Sprewell, who had somewhat of a redemptive arc, as we talked about before this season. He did stay out of trouble, 
and he was highly influential. He had an epic Game 5 that I remember watching in that finals, despite the loss. And it should be noted, though, again, supporting casts can influence all these variables. The Warriors also were not a particularly good team in 1999. Um, For those of you who are a little bit younger, this is not the Steph Curry, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson Warriors. This is a completely different team. They were not that good, and they finished next to last in the Pacific Division. Moving on now, I guess we'll never know exactly how the Knicks survived all of the drama surrounding the season. We can't really measure that statistically. But maybe Grunfeld lit the proverbial fire when he insisted on traveling with the team. Maybe the Knicks essentially used the regular season as the preseason, um, considering, again, this was a very compressed year due to the lockout, and the Knicks were particularly prepared for the playoffs. And we do know that the Knicks finally rallied around Jeff Van Gundy when his job was threatened, and perhaps this motivated them to win. Now finally, I want to see how the Knicks compare to the more recent team to replicate the eight fate, as they say. In other words, an eight making the eight seed making the NBA Finals, and that was the 2023 Miami Heat. And again, the Knicks and Heat are actually playing. I have it on mute, obviously, but I have it on my TV right now. The Knicks and Heat are actually playing, and I'm about to do a comparison. So it's very fitting that I'm recording this episode tonight. And again, we can't compare ELO because the play-in tournament complicates the R code that generates ELO. So we can't compare ELO, but we can compare four factors, okay? And in terms of four factors, the two teams had similar four factors distributions, although each were proficient in different areas. So the Knicks, as I mentioned earlier, did not rank above 14th in any offensive factor. And the Heat ranked above 14th in only one offensive factor. That was free throws for field goal attempt, attempt 8th at 0.224. And interestingly enough, this is lower than the Knicks in raw value, 0.241, but higher in rank. The Knicks ranked 15th. So both teams reached their respective finals primarily with defensive four-factor proficiency. Recall that the Knicks ranked second behind only San Antonio in opposing effective field goal percentage. That was 0.434. And the Heat ranked only 25th in opposing effective field goal percentage, but second in opposing turnover percentage, 0.145. Heat also ranked fourth in defensive rebound percentage, 0.777, while the Knicks ranked fifth in defensive rebound percentage, 0.71. So that's very similar there. He also had an edge in opposing free throws for field goal attempt, ranking 7th to the Knicks 18th, 0.198. So, while the Knicks were elite in stopping opponents' shots and defensive rebounding, the Heat were elite in turnover generation and defensive rebounding, along with solid opposing free throws for field goal attempt. So, overall here, okay, the apparent takeaway is that the path to the NBA Finals for an 8 seed necessitates elite performance in multiple defensive metrics. And we clearly see this with both the Knicks and the Heat. And so both teams had, at least, again, at least two top five, top five performances in defensive metrics. So opposing effective field goal percentage and defensive rebound percentage for the Knicks. 
opposing turnover percentage and defensive rebound percentage for the Heat, despite not even clearing the top 10 in any offensive metrics. Okay? And so again, this goes back to offense sells tickets, but defense wins conference championships. And that's very interesting to note because it appears to hold true in two very different eras of basketball. The 1990s, the emphasized that post presence, the interior emphasis of the late 1990s, you had the guys like the Ewings, like the Oakleys, like the Cambys, if you want to go to some other teams like the Shacks, okay? So that was the emphasis then. Now we have the point maximization emphasis on the three-pointer with guys like Steph Curry, okay? And so it's two very different eras, yet it's two very similar pathways to the NBA Finals for eight seats. Both of them emphasized defense, and I find that to be very interesting, and that's probably the greatest takeaway from this episode, is that the Knicks and the Heat both um, reached the NBA Finals by great by great by achieving greatness in the defensive metrics. With that, I'm going to close the episode for today. I hope you enjoyed this featurette on the Knicks. I'm Josh Lowe, and this is NBA Retrospective. <laughs>